Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. podcast land welcome back to tour guide tell all we are your friendly neighborhood tour guides who lead tours around washington dc and do a podcast because we love to talk about history and just can't get enough of it we talk about the scandalous often spicier side of u.s history politics dc with a focus on dc because that's where we are Uh, and we are happy to have you along with us Uh, as always i'm rebecca i'm becca and together we are the Rebecca. Yes. And we're back. <laughs> it's February. It's Black History Month, y'all. And as we always say, Black History is American history because American history is Black history. And it's important more now than ever, I think, talk about, um, and not just in February, you should talk about Black history all the time, but we devote a special, a lot of time to our February episodes uh, to talk about Black history. We have a lot of really great topics that we have done in the past. Uh, We've talked about the first two African-American senators in the past. Uh, We have talked about a lot of really great stuff uh, in our background. And so today we're going to start with two episodes about Black history. We also even have a very early days of the pod uh, episode about the founder of Black History and why it's called Black History and why specifically they picked February. They often says that, oh, Black History is the shortest uh, month of the year. That was deliberate. There's a reason behind it. So Carter Woodson is kind of the man. Uh, At any rate, we are back. We're going to talk about some fun stuff. We always love to give a shout out to our patrons, our lovely patrons who keep the lights on and make the music and the magic happen. And we're so grateful for you. And patrons get an extra special episode. So get on board with that. And we are starting to think about our spring tours. So if you're in the DC area, come on a tour because we are just as charming and delightful in person, honestly. Um, And that's kind of where we are. So Becca, are you ready? What are we talking about? I am ready. We are going to talk about something that has a little bit of a contemporary, I think, relevance to it. Uh, You're going to hear a name a little bit later of somebody who's definitely been in the news and we'll kind of address how and why. But we're going to talk about something that I think people definitely learn about in school. It's one of those kind of touchstone Supreme Court cases that gets taught when you sort of learn a little bit about the power of the court in our third branch. And that's the Dred Scott Supreme Court decision. So we're going to talk a little bit, not just about the decision, but about Dred Scott, his life, how he comes to be sort of synonymous with 
the Supreme Court and the role that the court plays in shaping civil rights and emancipation or lack thereof in, in this country. I think we should probably just drop a tiny caveat here that we, neither of us are lawyers, clearly, and neither of us are legal scholars, and I can't speak for Rebecca, but I'm not going to pretend to understand the intricacies of arguing a case before the Supreme Court. So we're going to do our best to make this digestible and to make a very complicated legal situation, a case that went through multiple courts and multiple hearings and make it easy to understand. I am sure those of you with a legal background, though, are going to listen and go, well, maybe they're missing this nuance or this thing. We're just going to admit it up front. We probably are missing some little legal nuances here and there. And that is just the reality. I am not smart enough to go to law school. (laughs) There's a lot going on. This is a complicated case. There's a lot involving which states are free states and slave states and where they're moving and why. And it gets endlessly complicated. And even if I'm not a legal scholar, I didn't go to law school, but even if you did, I would imagine like your average lawyer doesn't understand the ins and outs of a pre-Civil War case with involving free states and slave states since we haven't had that in a while. So this is a complicated one. The other thing I want to mention before we get into this, Becca, how do you pronounce the name of the chief justice who writes the opinion in this case? Taney. Taney. Okay. I always heard it was Tawny, Roger Tawny, like the color. I've heard it also as Tanny. So we're going to be talking two different pronunciations, but the same person when we get to him. Just Yeah. I actually dug in a little bit on the pronunciation, which I'll just throw this out here for those of you who might have grown up through the school system the same time I did is I never learned to read phonetically. We didn't learn phonetic reading. So I struggle straight up with pronunciation. And so I looked at multiple videos and it turns out there are multiple pronunciations of Roger Taney's name. That's what I'm going to say. I've heard Tawny too. Go for it. Um, But I'm going to go with Taney. But before we get into that, let's talk about the person Dred Scott. The name is often now synonymous with the Supreme Court decision that comes in 1857, which essentially, and we'll dig into this a little bit, holds that the U.S. Constitution does not extend citizenship and its rights and privileges to Black Americans. 1857, if you've been listening to our podcast at really any point, we talk a lot about the United States at this point, about how the Civil War doesn't come out of nowhere, that it's this evolution of the first half of the 19th century. And this is a key component of that. The Dred Scott decision is going to be a vital element into pushing us towards the Civil War. It is considered by many the worst decision made by the Supreme Court. And that's not just like considered that by many people on the internet. No, many people, mm-hmm. learned people through our history, consider this the worst decision. Chief Supreme Court Justice Charles Evans of the 20th century would call it the court's greatest self-inflicted wound. So this is something that has been deeply intertwined into understanding the Supreme Court. To understand this, though, you really have to understand who this person was. Yes. So Dred Scott was born enslaved in Virginia around 1799, as was very common in this institution and in this era. He's forced to relocate in and out of many states through sales, relocations. And I want to mention this early on because what Rebecca was alluding to earlier with free slates versus slave states, that's important. Location matters. He ends up in Missouri, enslaved by a man named Peter Blow and his family. So that is who enslaves Dred Scott initially. But as is often common, Scott is sold to a doctor, John Emerson, an army surgeon who plans to move to Illinois. And there is some debate about whether or not he was sold before or after 
Peter Blow died. And I mentioned this because this is going to have some relevance later too when we're talking about legal cases. Ownership and who has a right to say who owns who is going to matter. Scott getting sold to Dr. Emerson is actually going to motivate him to run away. Of course, when we say run away, that might imply like, I am just going to leave where I'm living and I'm just going to go as far away as I can. But in reality, the truth is many people who tried to run away or escape enslavement didn't go very far. They would just hide among other enslaved populations because where, where are you going to go? It's really hard if you don't have money, if you don't have papers, if you don't have a sense of geography beyond where you're living. And so that's what Scott does. He basically just kind of hangs out close to the Emerson property until he is inevitably caught because he doesn't really distance himself from his pursuers. So he ends up back with Emerson and he does not like it at all. Um, yeah. And he also like Emerson's in the in the, attached to the army. And this is going to become another complication in Dred Scott's case. Is Emerson in the army, in which case this would be a federal dispute, or is he not? And at what point does he leave the army? And does he have the right to bring his enslaved with him to non-slave states? So there's a, a lot of complications here. Dred Scott doesn't seem to like Emerson very much, uh, although not that that really matters as far as Emerson is concerned, but Emerson will move frequently as he's attached to the army. And again, Emerson's status with the army is not 100% clear, particularly when this case is brought. So it's not sure if he's in the army or if he's just attached to them. But he goes to several different forts, one of them in what is now Minnesota, but was then the Wisconsin Territory called Fort Snelling. He's there for a while. Emerson also doesn't have a problem or seem to have a, a scruple about renting out, essentially, Dred Scott's services to other officers uh, and other people in the area. So basically what you're seeing is Dred Scott and enslaved by this man who isn't always around. He goes other places. And when he's not around, Emerson has no problem essentially renting out his property, his uh, enslaved servant, to other people. Then this is all happening in what was a free territory. So it just gives you a sense of how insidious the system was, of how entrenched it is, and of how really ordinary the idea of this is. There's no one bats an eye about renting out and paying Emerson for the services of his enslaved man. So Dred Scott is not profiting from his own labor. His enslaver is, but they're all in a, in a free state. So again, this is complicated. It's exceptionally complicated, and it also shows that from state to state, territory to territory, there are not consistent laws. There's not a consistent definition of citizenship um, and what that really entails in many places, and this gets complicated. You mentioned Wisconsin, which would, today would be present-day Minnesota, but at the time it's Wisconsin Territory. During the time that Dred Scott is there, he is going to marry an enslaved woman named Harriet Robinson. Their marriage is interesting because they end up partaking in a civil ceremony, which was unusual in the time, and it was presided over by Robinson's enslaver, who happened to be a justice of a peace. So they were married by a justice of the peace is basically a judge, right, in the territories. This is a legal person endowed with the right to conduct this legal ceremony. And it's important to note it here, because while there was no codified legal sanction for marriages between enslaved people, the fact that this was carried out by someone of authority would be used later as evidence that Dred Scott was treated as a free citizen during his time in the Wisconsin Territory. Because if you can partake in a civil ceremony 
ruled over by a judge, that would seem to imply that you have the rights of citizenship. So again, it's this weird gray area that's existing in these places. And two things are worth noting about this. First of all, one of the few laws that seems to be across the country at that time is uh, regarding enslavement is that enslavement is passed down through the mother. So if they have children, it doesn't matter what Dred Scott's status is. It matters what the status of his wife, their mother is. So that's going to become important later. The other thing that matters here is slave marriages are not unusual. They happen a lot but they're not recognized by any sort of legal governing body. They're not even usually recognized by the enslavers. And so in a lot of places, slave marriages will amend the wedding vows to till death or distance do us part because they could get sold and never see each other again. And so that the idea was, since these have no legal authority, then there's no force of the law behind them. These couples can be separated and then are free to sort of go in their own uh, different way. And so Dred Scott is a very unusual case. And in some ways, like slavery, he's very typical. He's an enslaved man. He's treated terribly. And in some ways, he's very atypical because there's no other slaves that bring a court case all the way up to the Supreme Court. It's just Dred Scott. So it's a a real interesting look into how unusual he is and his case is versus how very typical the whole institution Absolutely. Um, He and his wife, another thing that is a little, I think, unusual, his wife, Harriet, will actually be transferred to Emerson. And so not always the case in these situations, but they agree to bring Harriet into Emerson's holding, as it were, so that they can remain together. And as you noted, that was quite odd. They have four children, two daughters who survive into adulthood, two sons that do not live past infancy. So we ultimately end up with four Scots, all enslaved by Emerson. They eventually have made their way back to Missouri. So they're now back to a slave state when Emerson dies. So Emerson dies. He has a widow named Irene. She will lease the Scots out over the next several years. You were sort of touching on how that was pretty common for Emerson. This is what his widow is doing as well. In 1846, Dred Scott offers up a chance. He basically asks for the opportunity to buy freedom for his family. He's offering $300, which um, today would have been about $9,000 in today's money. He is refused in this opportunity, and there is debate about that refusal as well, but he is refused. He and Harriet will file separate freedom suits, one for each of themselves and then one for each of their daughters. So initially, they decide to file freedom suits for all four of them, Their argument is that they had been held for an extended period of time in a free state or a free territory, thus they have earned the right to their freedom, and that Missouri should recognize that they were free upon their return to Missouri. Eventually, these four individual freedom suits are all going to be combined into one case in later trials. So for the purpose of this podcast moving forward, when we're talking about the Scott decision and we're talking about this this case, it actually involves all four Scots. But initially, they all file separately. So Dred Scott versus Sanford is the case. And actually, at this point in our story, someone comes into the story that's a little unusual, comes back into the story. The Blow family, who had been Dred Scott's initial enslavers, well, there's not a lot that's clear about his early life, but the first enslavers we have of record for him uh, is the Blow family. In the few decades since their patriarch, their father's death, 
and where they are right now in the 1840s, the Blows have become passionately abolitionists. They have turned against slavery. They have decided that this is a bad deal. And they are going to support both financially and emotionally Dred Scott's sort of freedom suit. One of the Blow children will eventually serve in Congress and help to draft the 14th Amendment. Another one is connected to somebody who writes an abolitionist newsletter. So they're very involved financially in what kind of goes on here. The freedom suit comes first before the Missouri Circuit Court. And the first court upholds the idea that once you are free, you are always free. So once you go to a free state and have been freed, you are always free no matter what else happens. And the Circuit Court says that they're free now. Yay. (laughs) Sanford appeals. In 1852, the Missouri Supreme Court reverses the decision on the basis that the state of Missouri does not have to abide by a free state's laws. So essentially, they were freed in a free state, but Missouri doesn't have to recognize that. And so in the eyes of the state of Missouri, because they're a slave state, they've never been freed. So that's kind of where that goes. Scott, at this point, Dred Scott decides to file a freedom suit in federal court in 1853, which he then will appeal directly to the United States Supreme Court. The Blows at this point, this has been several years. It's been a little bit of a drain on their resources. They do not think that the Scott case can win in the Supreme Court. And so they are going to essentially pull their financial involvement. Uh, And so Dred Scott will get pro bono representation. And that is going to bring us squarely to the Tawny Court, a Supreme Court in the 1850s, which is a whole lot. So yeah, so what you sort of have is, um, and this is still true today, right? Typically for a case to come before the Supreme Court, you're working your way through a circuit court system or a state Supreme Court system. Anytime you appeal and go before a new court, what that court is really evaluating is whether they agree with the lower court's ruling. Uh, And you have this classic example of a reversal for Dred Scott. He gets the ruling he wants, but of course, when that appeal happens, then it's an opposite result. So he wants to keep appealing. And I have to give the blows a little credit, right? They, They are good financial backers to Dred Scott. They are also public supporters and will put out um, editorials and articles saying that they believe truly that uh, his initial sale to Emerson was was not correct and that he, for all intents, should have been freed. But they're not wrong to maybe worry about his chances of winning before the Supreme Court. Because as you noted earlier, the idea of anyone enslaved even getting a case that far was pretty laughable. And then when you take a look at sort of the Supreme Court in the 1850s, you're not going to bet that they're going to be particularly empathetic to Dred Scott. And so I I do want to say I give the Blows a lot of credit for the amount of support they give the Scott family truly, but also their assessment that he's going to have a tough go before the Supreme Court is not wrong. And without, we, you know, we keep saying we should do an episode on, we've never really dug into the court in its earliest years. And we probably really need to do an episode on John Jay and John Marshall and some of these early years. But the first half of the 19th century, sort of 1800s, 18-teens to the 1850s, is very much about the Supreme Court flexing its muscles in terms of its power of judicial review. Because 
if you know a little bit about those early years of the United States, the court was kind of the sad forgotten stepchild of the three branches. There was no Supreme Court building when the capital city is being constructed. They literally get a courtroom in the basement of the Capitol, which doesn't exactly elevate the status. So this is something that the court justices, the Supreme Court justices are well aware of. And under Chief Justice John Marshall, the scope and the sway of the Supreme Court had increased, particularly in terms of restraining the actions of state government. And yes, that federal versus state debate is not a new thing. It's not a 21st century thing. It's deeply rooted from the beginning. And Marshall really is going to herald the power of this court to say, at the end of the day, we have a right to look at what you're doing on the state level and go, uh-uh. And then in 1836, he dies and we get a new chief justice. And he's not great, guys. Not great, Bob. No, Roger Tawney's not great. No, Roger Tawney's appointed by Andrew Jackson, which should be your first clue that we're about to... <laughs> that should be the first red flag. <laughs> first red flag. 1836, he is appointed Chief Justice and stuff starts to shift in a big way. Roger Tawney is from Maryland, but has been born into a wealthy enslaving family. So he, slavery is part of his background from his earliest days. He believes in the institution of slavery. Uh, and so by the time, 1836, by the time this case comes before the Supreme Court, he has been Chief Justice for two decades at this point. It is very much his court, is known as the Tawny Court. He has a much more limited view. <laughs> of one the, way to put it. <laughs> right? Uh, of limited, of, uh, of the powers of the federal government. He supports states' rights to act as they see fit. The reason for this is slavery is the topic on everyone's tongue. And so Tawny is a, supports enslavement, which means he supports states' rights. These go very much hand in hand. He supports the slave states' rights to do whatever they want to do, uh, and that states' rights are supreme. He comes from a slave-owning family. It does should be mentioned that Tawny does emancipate the enslaved people that he inherits from his father uh, and offers pensions to those who are old, too old to work. But he sees this as a state's rights issue and really is upset about Northern aggression towards slavery. So he is upset about the North sort of imposing their will with an unwilling group of slave states in the South. And so that's Tawny's big thing. He, the North is, is imposing their uh, will on the slave states. And so he's trying to limit that. Yes, in the 1850s, the real problem America is facing is the northern aggression yes. against the institution of slavery. It's definitely not the slavery no. itself. Definitely not slavery itself, yeah. Mm -mm. So you can imagine 20 years of cases have come before Tawny, for the most part. They have almost always found in favor of slave states or in favor of the state's right to make a decision on something. The odds are stacked against Dred Scott. Now, he does get uh, some pretty solid pro bono representation. Dred Scott is going to be represented by a man named Montgomery Blair and another man named George Tickner Curtis, whose brother happens to be a justice on the Supreme Court, which I don't know, seems like maybe a conflict of interest, but they didn't seem as concerned a little bit. about that back then. There's only so many connected you know, men at the time, I guess. Montgomery Blair is a name you have maybe heard before. 
I am a big fan because Blair was in Lincoln's cabinet. He was postmaster general for Lincoln. If you know the Blair house on Lafayette Square Park, right across from the White House, that is where he lived. It was his father's home to which he inherited and lived for quite a long time. So uh, if you know the Blair house, it is, yes, the same family. So Montgomery Blair is well-respected. He's considered a very strong lawyer, as is Curtis. And Curtis's connection to the court through his brother is seen as a good thing. Sanford, who is the man who is bringing this case against Strud Scott is represented by a man named Reverdy Johnson, which is just the most Southern name I can think of, and a guy named Henry Geyer. Geyer was from Missouri, and he was recruited to join the legal team specifically because of his extensive knowledge of Missouri law and politics, because their big argument is going to be stay out of Missouri stuff, right? The federal government has no place in what we decide to do in our state. Reverdy Johnson actually goes on to be a key player during the Civil War. He's kind of the reason Maryland doesn't secede as much as he is sympathetic, as it were, to the rights of these states to decide um, what they're going to do with slavery. He knew it was important to keep the Union preserved. And if you have ever seen the movie The Conspirator with Robin Wright Penn, all about Mary Surratt, um, he is one of the people who is going to defend her during her trial. It's Tom Wilkinson who plays Reverdy Johnson in the movie. So um, that it, these are on both sides of this case. Again, we're just a few years away from the Civil War. We've got some big players that are going to be very very, very much involved in national politics during the war. And both sides, and this is kind of questionable, but both sides agreed before bringing the case to the Supreme Court on a statement of facts that said that Dred Scott had been sold from Dr. Emerson to John Sanford, who was Irene Emerson's widow's brother. This is described as legal fiction by almost everyone who knew the people involved. It would make you laugh if it weren't so serious because it's not at all an accurate statement of facts. There's no evidence that the sale ever occurred. And yet both sides just go, yeah, let's just agree to this series of events because it will simplify things. And this agreement leads some people to argue and believe that Dred Scott was a test case, that they brought a case that they knew they probably couldn't win, but by agreeing to the statement of facts, it would make it seem more clear cut. But we have, and it should be stated, almost no evidence that Dred Scott was ever sold from Dr. Emerson to Irene's brother, John Sanford. Right. There is no evidence of that. And in fact, the first of all, the, the reason it's a federal case is because if Dred Scott was a citizen, he'd be a citizen of Missouri. Sanford lives in New York State and his the widow, Emerson, his sister, uh, she lives in Massachusetts and then by this time has remarried to an abolitionist. So this is all kinds of crazy complications. Additionally, when they file this with the Supreme Court due to a clerical error, they, his name is spelled wrong. So it's Dred Scott versus Sanford, S-A-N-F-O-R-D, but they add an extra D. And so officially the case is Sandford, S-A-N-D-F-O-R-D. So that's just, again, they're all right. They don't have typewriters back then, obviously. Uh, so just a little bit of like color here. It's all complicated all the time. They even get a presidential intervention. James Buchanan. President-elect would get involved, <laughs> which is, you know, not great or at all constitutional. First of all, he's not the president yet. And second of all, 
It's a separate branch of government. Yeah. So it's all trash all the time. Um, James Buchanan is the worst. And we did a whole pod about why he is the worst many, many days ago. Um, I mean, a close second maybe to Wilson, but he is not great. Also, and Andrew Johnson too. So yeah, there's the three, my, t- my worst three right there. The triumvirate. I know. Um, after the hearings, but before the decision is made. So they've argued in front of the Supreme Court. And the, the court is deliberating. They haven't made their decision yet. James Buchanan will write to Associate Justice John Catron asking if a decision will be made before his inauguration in 1857. So basically, like, we want the timing of this so it doesn't spoil my show, man. Yeah, it would be great if whatever outrage people are going to have over this is all done. And of course, back then, inaugurations were March and not January. Yep. So he's just like, I don't want this to spoil the early days of my presidency, which does not paint Buchanan in a great light. Right. Can we make this the last guy's problem? And then I'll just sail in and clean up the mess. That sounds good. Let's do that. Yeah. Buchanan also is going to stay close to another justice from Pennsylvania, Robert Cooper Greer, and pressures him to join the Southern majority in the decision to avoid the appearance of like sectional divides. So what ends up happening, the Supreme Court rules seven to two, partly because of this pressure on Robert Cooper Greer. Robert Cooper Greer, as a Pennsylvanian, is Northern. And so what Buchanan wants, because Buchanan himself is from Pennsylvania, he is a Northerner who's pretty okay with slavery. And he wants to show that this is a countrywide, a nationwide, we're not dividing on sectional lines for the Supreme Court. Uh, And so have a Northerner support the Southern majority making this, giving this the sort of stamp of legitimacy. It's this sense of bipartisanship, right? The sense of that we are in agreement, Northern and Southern justices, that these states are well within their rights to make these decisions. So on March 6, 1857, not too surprisingly, the Supreme Court rules against Scott 7-2. They're basically asked the question by this case of whether Black Americans are citizens have the right of citizenship, and they decide, no, they are not, and they cannot. Man, Roger Taney's majority opinion on this um, is big. It's hard because to read. it's not. It's not just the in this particular case mm-hmm. because of the complexities, or because we acknowledge the sale, we don't agree with Dred Scott's argument. He is going to build an argument that will have serious, major repercussions in our legal system. And this is one of the things that the Supreme Court, and again, not a legal scholar, so let's mention that. The Supreme Court still does. Do they decide this, the case, any case, on narrow grounds that affect just this case, or are they trying to make a broader statement about a bunch of different things? That's what they're doing with this case. I also will mention March 6th is when the decision comes down. Buchanan was inaugurated on March 4th. So like basically two days he's been in office and the Supreme Court's like, let's just drop a bomb. <laughs> and they go for it. Roger Tawney's decision is horrible and it's hard to read. And I'll tell you what, one, the, the line that's in the decision that sort of stands out is that a black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect. And the first time that I encountered this, like the Dred Scott case, I was a kid and I watched the Ken Burns Civil War documentary and they talk about this. They talk about Dred Scott. And because I was a kid and I was stupid, what I thought was, I heard that line and I just assumed someone was summarizing it like modern day, like compilizing and summarizing it for like a modern audience, that this was like a compilation of what Tawny had actually said. And it wasn't until I got much older that I realized, no, this actually is verbatim in Tawny's opinion. He actually literally says, the Supreme Court Chief Justice, that some group of Americans has no rights 
than another group of Americans has to respect. And it's just, it is really that terrible. He literally argues, I mean, truly, and um, pretty explicitly says that Black Americans were never meant to be part of the American social and political landscape. And that is really chilling. Yes. That this is deciding to take what could have been a very narrowly defined case and saying, actually, you were never meant to be a part of this country in any real way, politically or socially. And it's, it's, it's gross. <laughs> I mean, yes, it's terrible. And basically what this means is African-Americans cannot sue as citizens because they're not citizens in federal court and that U.S. states can't alter anything legal at all, cannot alter their legal status by making them citizens. Like there is no mechanism to free someone and then make them a citizen. They are not citizens. They have no rights. And Tani will even go further because this isn't trash enough. Tawny keeps going. He assesses the constitutionality of the Missouri Compromise and concludes that it's unconstitutional. So basically, like the Supreme, this is the first time in almost 50 years that some a Supreme Court has struck down a federal law, although Kansas, Nebraska have been effectively overridden. But they're basically saying that this federal law is null and void. And there is African-Americans were never meant to be a part of the like social and legal fabric of this country. They have no rights. The Constitution doesn't recognize them in any meaningful way. And that's just how it's going to be. And it's it's a brutal decision. It is not great. If you listened to our Sumner episode not long not long ago, you understand how tense things were with Kansas and Nebraska Act that had already essentially overridden the Missouri Compromise. Now you have the Supreme Court saying, yeah, that should have never existed. It legitimizes Kansas and Nebraska. It really is a matter of the court stepping into legislating to an extent. And so it's it's crazy. If you read this today, and we'll drop all this in the show notes, it is really a scary decision. And there is a dissent. We have two dissenting justices, Justice Benjamin Curtis, who is the brother to Dred Scott's lawyer, and Justice John McLean, both file dissenting opinions. Curtis is going to basically call Taney out. He's going to write 67 pages of dissent picks apart the entire argument, and his dissent was so effective that before these decisions were officially released, Taney went back to his original decision and added 18 additional pages to argue back. So I think it's important to note that because even in 1857, another justice was saying, this is nonsense. This is not the role of the court. We cannot at all make this broad statement on citizenship. Uh, He really dissects the entire argument. So I want to make it clear to people listening, the blowback to this is immediate. It is not a contemporary reimagining. It's not looking at it through 21st century eyes. In 1857, a justice said, this is legal nonsense, and you are not building an an, an argument that can be supported. The other justice, McLean, takes a very different direction with his dissent, and he basically says the court should simply have dismissed the case. Because by taking this case on with its complications and deciding to rule on it, they created unnecessary precedents. And basically, McLean's whole thing is, we should have never gotten involved in this. And maybe he's not so wrong about that because of what the dissenting opinion tries to do. So this is a bombshell, right? It's just this giant legal bomb. I also do want to mention, Roger Tawney, there is no other concurring opinion. 
They weren't as popular back then as they are today, but none of the other seven justices who agree with Tawney, who sign on to his uh, majority opinion, none of them want to write anything else. They basically all read Tawney's opinion and are like, yeah, no, that sounds great. This is, this is exactly what we want. And so they're very much in lockstep. So the seven justices who are pro stripping this man of his freedom and of his citizenship and his humanity, they're all in lockstep on this. So this is a very much a, like a, a clear cut decision. Tawny, what he wants to do is to settle this issue once and for all, which is not how it ends up working. But we're also like a, exactly a year, not quite a year out from the caning of Charles Sumner. So a couple of months ago, we talked about Charles Sumner. That's going to be in May of 1856. This is March of 1857. So events are moving faster and faster and things are accelerating. And so we're seeing how this is propelling us into the war. Um, and the impact, like Becca said, is immediate. This is a bombshell. It is a big deal. In fact, Sumner himself from his sickbed in Massachusetts will issue like a statement essentially denouncing this Supreme Court decision. So this becomes a big deal. Irene Emerson, who may or may not have been Dred Scott's owner, may or may not have, who knows, not clear. She by this time has married an abolitionist, Calvin Chaffee, and they're in Massachusetts. And he's going to get a ton of blowback for being a hypocrite, as you would imagine he would because he is. And he'll argue that he has not the legal means to free Scott as the claim he belongs to his brother-in-law, Sanford, who's now deceased. But ultimately, they're going to transfer Dred Scott to Henry Taylor Blow, who's the son of the original owners, the Blows, uh, who will file manumission papers. And Scott and his family are all emancipated on May 26, 1857. So about two months later. They're all emancipated. Which there's sort of an argument that's made even before the case is done or brought to the Supreme Court that this could be just done, right? And Chafee's not wrong that things are complicated. We talk about this with a lot of the figures we talk about in the early part of the 19th century, that you can't emancipate what you don't own. And those ownership laws are tricky. And this is another insidious element of uh, the institution of slavery is that um, even though you go, sure, my my brother-in-law, Stanford, is dead. Uh, by the time this comes to the, the Supreme Court, he's no longer living. Does it revert back to Irene? It's unclear. Does her husband have a legal right? Typically, if it's through marriage, you don't have a legal right. And so he's not wrong about that, but it does make him look like a real jerk that he's allegedly this abolitionist. So they take this path. The Scots do get emancipated shortly thereafter, but there is sort of this question of, they could have gone this path before. And even if you are, to an extent, there's a slight bit of hollowness to it because you have been emancipated, but you have also been told that you are essentially not a citizen, right? That great, you've you've been manumitted and that's fine, but you know, good luck in this country. You know, the landscape does not look particularly promising. The reaction to this though is just insane. You can imagine every newspaper is gonna take a particular tack and it's gonna either be Northern aggression, everybody's against us, or this settles the question of slavery once and for all, and you know, it's a state's right, and blah, 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 blah. Or it is, come on, we can't even trust the Supreme Court to be objective and fair. It's going to really be a boost to abolitionist fundraising, and it's a big boost politically for the anti-slavery movement broadly. And that is something I don't think Roger Taney really considered. 
he thought, oh, this is going to answer the legal question. We are just going to agree to disagree on this and just say it's a state's right. And what it does is it empowers this growing little Republican Party and it further divides the Democratic Party. And if you listen to our episode on the election of 1860, which will come two and a half years after this, this is how we get where we get politically. And he basically really emboldens the Republican Party to go all in. There, there, it becomes the you cannot reason with these people, which we sort of touch on with the Sumner, too. It's like we cannot reason with slave owners. We cannot reason with slave states. The only way is at full-blown abolition. And if we have to fight for it, we will. Right. And you're getting to the point where, like, violence is becoming more and more of an option. Um, you're getting to the point where there's just no way we can heal the divisions of this land. We are clearly in two different realities as far as the question of slavery. The North has one view and the South has a completely different. And we're not meeting in any sort of way. There's no way for the system to hold because the middle is collapsing. Um, what happens to Dred Scott is he does not enjoy his freedom long. He becomes a porter in a hotel in St. Louis, uh, but dies of tuberculosis about a year and a half after he is uh, manumitted. His wife and two daughters survive him. He actually will be uh, in death. He has kind of a torturous path as well. Uh, he has moved from one cemetery to another, but the Blow family actually pays for his uh, interment and he's still in a cemetery outside of St. Louis. Uh, his wife survives him by 18 years, and at least one of his daughters gets married and has descendants, and they're actually, as of very recently, were some of his descendants that live in the St. Louis area still. So Dred Scott does still have uh, living uh, descendants uh, in, the, uh, in the area. So he's, there's, it's, this is still a bit. And I remember a few years back, they found some, like NPR or something, found one of his descendants, and one of Tawny's descendants, and they met uh, to sort of talk about how their their sort of family connection has gone back a while and what has sort of become of their sort of family connection. It was actually a really interesting article, and I'll see if I can find it to drop it in the show notes. But Dred Scott becomes one of the big signpost moments on the way to the Civil War. And it's just a Tawny's decision is it's terrible and it's like a violation, but it's such an example of how he thought things were going to just settle at this point and they end up just kicking up a whole different storm and taking things in a direct a different direction. Absolutely. Um, yeah, one of the things they did when they brought together sort of a descendant of Tawny and a descendant of Scott was actually an apology, right? An acknowledgement that this didn't just impact one man and one family, right? This decision had an incredible amount of impact over all African-Americans in this country. And, you know, Tawny, for a long time, you're chief justice of the Supreme Court for, you know, 20 some odd years. You're going to get stuff named after you, right? You're a big figure. He's a big figure in Maryland politics. Um, and so for a long time, there were schools named after him. There were, you know, statues and things of him. There is less and less of that now. Um, one of the middle schools in Maryland uh, that was named for him was renamed for Justice Thurgood Marshall um, about 10 or 20 years ago. They renamed the school. A statue that was of him on the grounds of the Maryland State House was removed in 2017. And uh, one of the reasons you have maybe heard about Tawny recently is at the United States Capitol building, they have the old courtroom restored as it was down below. And when you walk in, there are like busts of, you know, Supreme Court justices. And there was Roger Tawney. And it is not likely he will be there very, I can't remember, has he actually been pulled out yet? I don't think he's been pulled out yet. Yeah. So they're going to remove him. 
and they're going to replace it with a bust of Thurgood Marshall. So, uh, and if you go to the United States Supreme Court building, there are busts um, and portraits of all the Supreme Court justices. Tani is still there, but I think taking him out of the Capitol building sends an important message. It's, it's not necessary for him to be there. And so that is something you've probably mm-hmm. been hearing about. Um, and likely, I imagine, by the time this actually airs, we'll be closer to actual removal. But that was a resolution just passed um, not even two years ago yep. uh, to have him removed. Yep. And so that is Dred Scott and uh, the enduring impact of the case and how it propels us to the Civil War and how it's both a, a legal, an important legal milestone and it also is so representative of the cruelty and dehumanization of enslavement um, because it's Dred Scott's not just a legal case. He's a person with a family that was suffering. And it's really just such an interesting um, inter- uh, for the impact, both legally and personally, and how this kind of plays out. Absolutely. Um, you know, we we talk a lot about this era on this podcast, but it's one that I think gets brushed over. So often we kind of jump right into the Civil War and that's exciting. But what's happening in the country in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s is so significant to shaping the trajectory of the 19th century and really even shaping kind of our definition of ourselves well into the 21st century. And so um, we keep kind of coming back to this era because there are these names that sort of represent these big moments, but they do sort of reflect the everyday reality and challenges of life for the disenfranchised um, in this country. And so um, as always, we'll drop some things in the show notes. I'm going to drop some links in particular to some very good um, Supreme Court centered blogs that can dig into a little bit more of the legal complexities that we are not as adept with, but we'll put in some some good stuff there in the show notes. So be sure to be checking those out. Um, if you're just automatically downloading these, you can always check out the actual podcast page, get the show notes, check out the links. And I'm, ex- I'm excited. We have more great stuff for Black History Month. If you're not a patron, consider becoming a patron because we've got a great podcast patron-only episode coming for this month. So you're not going to want to miss that. So it's never too late to become a patron and get access to that special feed. And you'll get all the patron back episodes as well. And thank you guys for coming along. We'll be back in a couple weeks. And you're the best. Happy February. Yay. Yeah. Thanks, guys.